Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. When eating in different countries, it's always a good idea to try and learn at least a little bit of that country's language. When you go into that amazing ramen shop in Tokyo, it's nice to have a little help from the Google Assistant. Hey Google, how do you say this tastes delicious in Japanese? In Japanese, that's The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. A little help, hands free. Just say, hey Google, to get started. Today's show is also brought to you by East Fork. East Fork makes beautiful, durable plates, bowls, mugs, and more in Asheville, North Carolina, using regional stonework clays in a gorgeous array of colors. They make vessels that will elevate the most humble of dishes that look great stacked up tall in the past and hold up well in commercial dishwashers. Go to eastfork.com and use code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for 15% off your first order. That's a great deal for an amazing ceramic product. And follow along at East Fork Pottery, one word. That's eastfork.com, code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. This week, we have a sports mega podcast. So if you don't like sports, I don't know if you're going to love this podcast. Um, as usual, we get to talk to some of the Ringer experts. We have Kevin O'Connor and we have Kevin Clark, respectively covering the NBA and the NFL in what is going to be, again, a podcast sports power couple hours. Um, this is the best time for sports, in my opinion. If you live in America, this moment of early fall, beginning of November, you have what was just the end of the World Series. We recorded this before the end of the World Series. You have NHL, if anyone still watches NHL hockey. You have the beginning of the NBA season, and you have the middle of the NFL season all happening at once. And this is always my favorite time to watch sports. So I wanted to do a super sports podcast. We're going to start off with Kevin Clark. I admire everything this guy does. He's one of the most brilliant minds that's covering football today. And I just love how he's trying to illuminate all the good things that are happening in football, which is about keeping an open mind, having the ability to challenge a status quo, and just his general football savvy all right, and how that can apply to the culinary universe, which I believe there are plenty. Kevin Clark, if you're not familiar, go read all his bylines on theringer.com, and he's got some great Twitter, social media footage. And a lot of this conversation talks about Bill Belichick. <laughs> I love Bill Belichick for reasons that Kevin will explain, but this is an interesting time for football because the NFL is in constant flux, and I think we're beginning to see real change happen in how coaches and the teams approach building their franchises. The reason why I always like talking about football in, in relation to the culinary universe is that football might be the most stubborn, pig-headed sport around. Commonly held beliefs and the way people make decisions are just like no one ever thinks about why, other than this is how it's always been done. And we're at the beginning of, I think, the end of that. And if football can be open to change, 
I think it can lead the lead the charge for how the culinary profession can be open to change, particularly in how we cook and um, the methodology and the different techniques. It's about openness and not having a closed stance to things. And I think if you look at the teams that are successful year after year, particularly the New England Patriots, it's constantly reinventing themselves and taking information from places that most people would might normally throw away, like high school or college football. And I think that's the same thing for the culinary profession. We should be open to any and everything that might make our restaurant industry better and make more delicious food. Um, we cover the NBA with Kevin O'Connor. And again, similar to Kevin Clark, I love talking to Kevin about the NBA because he looks at it in a way that I want to know how he looks at, if that makes any sense. When I watch him watch basketball, I don't think he's looking at the same sport as I am. And when you have someone that can do analysis and look at the minutiae and details and extrapolate information that I would never have picked up, I think that there's a lot of trends that he's looking at that I would like to understand because maybe that's going to happen in my profession as well. So without a doubt, this is something that might be a stretch of the imagination for people that are fans of sports or in the culinary industry, but I wanted to do a podcast mainly because I like talking to both Kevin. So this is the Kevin Power Hour or Kevin Two Hour Power Couple Podcast. Whatever the fuck I just said. Anyway, this is a very long podcast about sports. We're just going to go straight into it. Here you go. Here's Kevin and Kevin. Thank you for doing this at last minute. Of course. Um, one of my favorite podcasts we did last year was with Kevin Clark. Uh, if there's any sport I feel like I know or can really understand, it's football. So mm-hmm. every time you write an article, it's very enlightening for me. I'm and it validates a lot of the things that I feel like are trends culturally. And I hope that it makes me understand my uh, culinary universe a little bit better. That being said, what are the trends? So we're almost halfway through the mm-hmm. season. What's going on? What's the biggest trend that you've identified this year? Sure. So there's a couple of them, I would say. I would say number one is the peak of something that's happened in the last couple of years, which is backup quarterbacks can win teams games. And I think that when you look at what that means for the league, it's not that quarterbacks are better or that there's more depth or whatever. It's that you can create a good quarterback, which you could not do 10, 15 years ago. You can scheme up a good quarterback, right? So the Panthers can create a world where Kyle Allen is as good as a regular B-plus talented quarterback by basically faking it. And I think that's important. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, you can essentially scheme guys open. You can run these schemes. Defenses cannot keep up with offenses anymore. And so offenses can basically scheme guys open to where receivers are just open more than ever. The the, the open pass is easier to to get to than ever um, in the history of football because you know there's there's a handful of reasons. Number one is that best the best athletes are still on the offense, and then the rules have essentially neutralized defense. The NFL wants this to happen, and so. Basically, if you're the Kansas City Chiefs, you can get a guy open 60, 70% of the time. And that wasn't true five, 10 years ago. So does does this uh, de-emphasize good quarterbacks? That's a great question. There's been studies done that a great quarterback 
is less important than ever because anyone can be a good quarterback. Does that make sense? So statistically, you know, you always would rather have Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson or Tom Brady than Jared Goff. But what's happening now is Sean McVay can make Jared Goff play like those guys on his best day. Now, there are certainly lows. Jared Goff is not as good as those guys, but good coaching and good schemes and and the cutting edge of schemes can make Goff appear to be Russell Wilson on most days. And that's why we've had a banner year for rookie or first-year quarterbacks. Yep. Well, yeah, and I would say that's another part of it is there's almost like a 10,000-hour theory for all quarterbacks coming in now. So seven-on-seven leagues in Texas and Florida and California, those, you didn't used to play 12 months. So back up, what's a seven-on-seven? So seven-on-seven is essentially flag football, and it's just passing, and you can play it all year round. It's not tackle, and so you don't have to worry about the, the bodies holding up, all that stuff. So if you're coming through in Texas, in those states, warm weather states, you're playing 12 months a year. That was not true 10 years ago. Tom Brady probably did not play as much football as Patrick Mahomes did growing up. Patrick Mahomes probably played once a week, whether that was flag football or tackle football, every single week that he wasn't playing baseball from the time he was six until he was 18. And I think that that's these guys are throwing more and they're more prepared and they've seen more. That's why you can see someone like Patrick Mahomes with the different arm angles and stuff like that. It's because they are throwing geniuses because no one in the history of the sport has thrown as much as them. And I think you're starting at the lower levels and it's only going to increase. These guys are getting reps and they're getting reps in a way no one else has before. So it really is really is a 10,000 hour theory that, that it was really hard to get to in earlier generations of football. When I think about someone like Kyler Murray, who was drafted yeah. number one, and whether he's a system QB or not, I think he's very exciting to watch regardless. But he's a short quarterback. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, he would not be drafted, I think. But he went number one right. overall, right? Right. So Drew Brees, one of the most efficient quarterbacks in history of football, dropped to the second round because he was 5'11". If you weren't 6'3", there was a body type. And if you weren't that body type, you were thrown into the trash can by NFL teams. That's why Russell Wilson, as good a leader and as good a passer he was in college, everyone knew who he was. He was starring every single week on Saturdays. He gets to the NFL and they say, oh, well, he's 5'11". He's, he drops to the, the 44th overall pick. Okay, and so, Or the third round, excuse me. And so when I think about what Kyler Murray means before that Baker Mayfield, it's that... NFL teams are okay taking chances on special players because enough cases have been shown to where, okay, height doesn't matter like we thought it was. Conventional wisdom in the NFL is almost always toppled. This is happening right now with Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson dropped the 32nd overall pick, and he might end up being the second or third best player in that draft last year because teams figured out that if you have a great athlete who can throw the ball and you have a great plan around him, anything can work. The reason he dropped was, again, because conventional wisdom said, oh, well, a quarterback can't run the ball that much. A quarterback can't take that kind of punishment. A quarterback you know, has to be able to throw this throw or this, that throw. It does not matter. If you are special, you can play special in the NFL. That has always been proven. This is the 100th year of the NFL. It keeps happening. NFL teams don't learn this lesson. And all of a sudden, the Ravens get Lamar Jackson at pick 32, and they look like they have a contender on their hands. Can you elaborate on what you said as the comment, uh, the statement, really, that the conventional wisdom always gets toppled because it's something I say yeah. all the time in food? Cultural truths about food are always wrong. Always. Yep. It's just like, 
we're seeing this revolution right now. We're like, wait, Chinese food, Ethiopian food, <laughs> food from Georgia, you know, Eastern Bloc food. Everything is like, wow, this is delicious. Why were we not really appreciating this before? They've been doing this technique way longer than, you know, France has. Yeah. And still people are like slowly warming, but it's still like probably 10, 15 years away of getting acceptance. And the funny thing is to me is who cares? It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Adopt it. Right. Exactly. And, and that's what's, that happened with the spread offense. That happened with someone like Kyler Murray, with Lamar Jackson. Again, if you can figure out how to use these guys, they will be special for you. The problem is there's so much stubbornness or so much job protection in the NFL that guys don't want to say anything other than, I'm going to do what I've done for my entire career. You know, I remember... I think the, the best example of this was Marcus Mariota came into the NFL in 2015. And he was basically placed under a handful of coaches who had no interest in running anything like what he had at Oregon, where he was the most electric player in college football. They came in and they said, no, no, you're going to be an NFL quarterback. And what that meant was really basic schemes. Mike Malarkey was the head coach. Uh, he basically said, if you think that stuff can work in the NFL, you're wrong. And that's been proven over and over and over again to be wrong. Every single every single camp tour I would go on. I started the NFL beat essentially in 2012 for the Wall Street Journal. Every summer I'd go and hear some excuse. It was, oh, well, you can't spread the ball out because those are high school routes or those are those are gym school routes, right? And every single time the next year, somebody would start running those routes and they'd always work. Same with running quarterbacks. Same with certain types of offensive line play. I mean, it's just there are still probably half the coaches in this league who think running the ball is the most important thing. And that's not true at all. I mean, the data shows that. I think your eyes show that when you can see Patrick Mahomes throw the ball 60 yards down the field and the guys want to run the ball four yards. There is no evidence for emphasizing a running game except... That's the way you've always been done. And you're 55 years old and you've been doing it since you were 20. That's the only reason to cling to some of these old world views. And what happens is once a year, a new coach starts chipping away at that, chipping away at that, chipping away at that. And the only way all of these new ideas will come in is if all of the current coaches are out. And that's happening. Maybe. For sure. For sure. That's why, I mean, the, the Arizona Cardinals probably should not have hired Cliff Kingsbury as their coach. He was, he was at Texas Tech. He failed. He runs one of the most wide open offenses in college. Then he comes to the NFL. He wasn't very good, again, as a college coach, but they get points for innovation. He's spreading the ball out. He's using a very innovative college offense, college-style offense, almost a high school offense. And so even though he's probably a bad hire, they do get points in innovation. I would rather have the innovation right now than, you know, a mediocre coach. These are just fascinating things for me to talk about. Even though I know it, I always have to be reminded of all the things you're talking about because if you don't fight the status quo, yeah. it's like, why? Why? It's the same shit. I, I can't, for the life of me, understand in food why everyone does the same goddamn yeah. thing. Yep. And if it happens in football where everyone's watching this. And I was like, man, this is never going to not happen. It's always going to happen this right, way. Right. You brought up Mariota. If Mariota was drafted today, yeah. would it be the number one pick? I think he would be. And I think that they would figure out a way to use him better. And I think that that's the biggest thing. And I think Mariota was not well protected by offensive lines coming up. And, you know, one of the things I think about Kyler Murray that is good is that he realized what he needed to do to get to the NFL and be an elite quarterback. And that meant protecting himself. You will see Kyler Murray fall down before a sack. You will see Kyler Murray run out of bounds. And I think that's the kind of thing with this generation, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, 
Baker Mayfield, I think, is pretty good at this, where they understand that the old way of thinking was that these running quarterbacks can't protect themselves. So what do they do? They got really good at protecting themselves. I think actually Marcus Mariota took too many hits early in his NFL career. He actually probably missed the window by three or four years to be an elite-level, instinctual guy who can avoid those hits. So he took he stood in the pocket and took a lot of hits. And at this point, he's been really banged up. And so I think Marcus Mariota was born, for as a college player, who was born at exactly the right time. But for an NFL player... A part of me thinks he was born five years too early. Hmm. And I feel there is an analogy for a lot of chefs out there that you're like, wait, they did something extraordinary. They're incredibly talented. The world wasn't ready for it quite yet. And you see that all the time. Can his career be salvaged? Because now he's got to back up to Tannehill. Yeah, it's going to be tough. He needs to go to a place that's just a, a quarterback's dream. And I would love to see him... I mean, there's a handful of places. I'd love to see Bill Belichick at some point because I think one of the things that Bill Belichick is really good at is figuring out what guys can do, not what they can't do. It's funny. I wrote a piece this year about how many high school coaches have now worked their way into the NFL and how there's sort of a closed loop of NFL coaches. Great article. Thank you. And then the high school coaches got into it. And I asked one of the high school coaches, one of the best high school coaches in the state of uh, history of Georgia, won, I think, seven straight high school championships. And I said, what is, what is it that high school coaches bring? And he said, high school coaches cannot pick anything about their circumstance. They are given whatever's in the talent pool, and they have to sort it from there. So what they learn is they have to take what can a guy do, not what he can't do. And we're not, this quarterback is not getting any better at XYZ, so we have to figure out what kind of offense we can run. Bill Belichick is really the only NFL quarterback who's always had that mindset. Okay, Kyle Van Noy uh, is a great example. You know, he can't do X, Y, and Z. The Lions dump him. Well, he can do this, this situational thing. That's what the whole do your job thing. It's not Bill Belichick saying do your job. That's not it. It's Bill Belichick is saying do your job, and it's a very specific job that he's giving you, okay? And so that is the whole, that is the whole genius behind New England is that they shave these guys down to just one or two responsibilities, and they have nothing else on their plate, and they just get to do what they're good at. And that's what I think would be really amazing if someone like Marcus Mariota were under the employee of Bill Belichick, is he would say, we're not going to make you this quarterback, we're not going to make you that quarterback. You can do these three things, and that's all you're going to do. Mariota could actually wind up on the Pats. If uh, maybe, yeah. Brady I mean, leaves. Tom Brady is, yeah, he's 42. I just, one of the most fascinating subplots to me in football will be what Belichick does, because he got rid of Garoppolo, Got rid of Brissett. Brian Hoyer started the season as the backup this year. I don't know where they go from here with the backup situation, but they don't have an heir apparent right now. Stidman's not going to be the I guy? Guess, I guess Stidham could. I don't know. He, he did not. Everyone knew Garoppolo. You know, Garoppolo benefited from the Tom Brady to play Gate suspension. That was three games. And Brissett plays that fourth game because Garoppolo's hurt, and so he wins a game against Houston. So those guys were able to emerge as a legitimate option. So could Jared Stidham be the next guy? I don't know. We just haven't seen him in the NFL you know, in regular season action. So I'm going to hesitate to say that he's the heir apparent so far. Wow, Belichick getting Mariota would be the most Belichick thing humanly possible to turn him into a Super Bowl quarterback. He could turn anybody. <laughs> you know, I, I've joked about this before, but I think Bill Belichick has a fantasy of having a bad quarterback. Because I think that part of him loves scheming up 
different things. I think when he had, I mean, really the worst starting quarterback he's had in the last number of years has been Jacoby Brissett, who we're finding out now is pretty good. But he was, I think that the schemes that he shows when he doesn't have Tom Brady, you know, he sees with Sean Payton as well, where he puts Taysom Hill out there. And I think that it's always because I think these guys want to have to create offense and they don't get to because they have the two of the best quarterbacks in the history of the game who solve all of their problems. These guys are at their heart problem solvers and they don't really get to get as weird as they would like with the offense. You know, Bill Belichick signed Tim Tebow and it didn't work out and all this stuff. But Bill Belichick for years have been talking about the single wing offense and stuff from the 1920s, 1930s in regards to Tebow. And I think that there's part of Bill Belichick, but man, what if I had to just get totally weird on offense? Because I think he has an extremely creative mind, and we haven't really seen that with him on offense. So when Brady does go, I think that we're liable to see Bill Belichick get very, very strange because he's just such a creative person. I love him so much. He's amazing. Is he just contrarian? Is he money ball? He's basically no. money ball, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, it's basic economic principles, first of all, which stun 31 other teams, which is don't overpay for a guy. Let a guy go a year too early instead of a year too late. The do-your-job stuff. Um, I don't think anybody wants to replicate this. I actually talked to a handful of his former disciples in who are running other teams now, whether that's you know the GM in Atlanta, the guys in Detroit, the GM of Tennessee is a former Patriot executive. I talked to these guys, and they said, why doesn't anybody follow in the footsteps of Bill Belichick? And they said, first of all, you can't even try because no one is as good a coach and so if you try these basic economic principles, you'll just end up with, you just won't end up putting these guys in position to succeed as Belichick does. Belichick's genius is he can create one team from one week to the next. And, you know, one of the things about that Rams Super Bowl, for instance, where they won, was they, the Rams were not expecting as much zone defense as they got. Because most teams are the same team week to week. And Bill Belichick just creates a new team every single week. You know, one of the the jokes I always say is that if Belichick wanted to, the best use of him after he retires is just coaching a different team each week, going and coaching the Seahawks, then coaching the Cardinals, then coaching the Falcons. And it's almost like a a bar rescue type thing, right? right? Where he just goes in and says, hey, why don't you think about this? Because he can do anything from week to week because he just knows how football works, where the pieces need to be. And he has the guts to do this stuff. One of the things that I think that I've heard from a lot of people is that because he knows he's untouchable, because he knows he cannot get fired ever, he can do crazy things like trade Chandler Jones for a second round pick and then Jones becomes the, you know, the leading sacker a year later. Nobody cares. Nobody mm-hmm. cares. He got a second round pick. They don't take the salary cap hit. He can take risks because he knows there are no consequences. I could talk about Belichick forever oh, and I'm going to try not to because I want to get to another coach and we we referenced him in regards to Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, someone like Lincoln Riley. Yeah. That will probably be a name that NFL teams are going to want to hire. It's so clear to Lincoln Riley to create these systems where you can create quarterback after quarterback, and now he has Jalen Hurts. Why can't everyone do it? Yeah. Because it doesn't seem that complicated. It doesn't seem that complicated. I mean, it almost comes down to the Belichickian thing, which is you you design an offense around a person, or you des- you take what you have and you go from there. I think that there's, I think you'd be surprised at how little mental flexibility there is for most coaches, and I think you'd be surprised at how stubborn they can be, and and they just don't have a lot. You know, Chip Kelly, who we thought was the smartest coach in the history of football, he got to the NFL, and we found out he really only had one pitch. 
Hmm. And he, he, he kind of, once he got to San Francisco, he didn't make any adjustments. And he really didn't have that, that second level. And, you know, I like to joke about Russell Wilson. I, I compare him to Dave Grohl because he started out as kind of a drummer in the background. Okay, you got Marshawn Lynch. You got this great offensive line. You got, obviously, the Legion of Boom, which was the defense that won them the Super Bowl. And then he became the lead singer. And that's what he is now. And I think your ability to go from one point to the next in your career is a really underrated thing in the entire sport of football. And so, again, what Lincoln Riley's doing is creating a different team every single year. And that's what's the amazing thing. I think it requires some flexibility. I think it requires just general smarts. I talked to him last year about this, and I think that he was really fascinated by just the fact that there there had to be I mean, I, I, this is my word, but there had to be sacrificial lambs for that kind of offense at the NFL level. I mean, Chip Kelly really had to stick his neck out in order to make mm. that stuff work. And I think he had to have a lot of success with it. I think that Lincoln Riley, and this is just me, I asked him this question and he was sort of, he, he didn't want to go there, but I think he will be at the NFL at some point because I do think that those guys, when they have such good schemes, they really want to see at least one time if their schemes can work at the biggest, biggest level. And then that leads me to an, like another coach that is a young, hot thing, and it's McVeigh. Yeah, did he not move fast enough? That's see that that's what's happening right now. That's the biggest debate: is McVeigh the new Chip Kelly? And he's a coach of the Los Angeles Rams, right? And he's thirty-three years old, and I still think he's one of the best coaches in the NFL. If he doesn't come up with something new, so essentially what happened, and and this is you know, a competitive advantage thing. Essentially what happens is three people who were really smart showed a, a blueprint on how to stop the Rams. One was Bill Belichick in the Super Bowl. One was Vic Fangio, who's now the coach of the Broncos, but last year was the, the Bears fence coordinator, and then Matt Patricia. And what they did was they essentially showed how to take away the run game, and the run game is what propelled the pass game with the Rams, and now the Rams do not have the magic they had last year. That, that's pretty obvious to say at this point. And so what we're going to find out now is what the adjustment is. Because a lot of great coaches have had one idea. Very few of them have had two ideas. And that's what we're going to see with McVay. I still believe in McVay. Um, I still think he has the capability to be a multiple Super Bowl winning, winning coach. But if he can't get past this, he's just another coach who, who had one idea. I, again, don't think that's going to happen. But one of the things about football is your weaknesses get exposed in front of 40 or 50 million people including everybody in the NFL. And once it's on tape, it goes fast. It goes fast. Mm. And so what happened with the Patriots was they showed the way, you know, uh, they had uh, Jonathan Jones who played safety for them in the Super Bowl. And he was able to essentially take off all the speed that the Rams had. Um, the way their secondary was put together for that game was just really incredible. And so now if you're playing the Rams, you can look at that Patriots game and just say, we're just going to do that. And then you have to realize that your competitive advantage is gone if you're the Rams and you have to come up with something new. That is very, very rare in American industry, but it really is uh, the reality of the sport, which is if you fail, you will keep failing because everyone saw how you failed. But you and a lot of NFL experts had all summer or the year since the Super Bowl looked at that game film and were like, yeah, this is uh, this is the blueprint. Yeah, if everyone else knew it, how the hell did Sean McVay not make enough adjustments? I he's been blaming himself for eight months. He's been blaming himself for eight months. I think that the Patriots did not run exactly what the Lions did 
uh, a couple weeks before, or, nor did they run exactly what the Bears had done a couple weeks before. They changed up the secondary enough. I think they the the word is they borrowed kind of what they did with the the front seven, and then changed up what they did with the secondary. How did Sean McVay not make enough adjustments? I think that at some point you get really confident in your schemes. And Sean McVay has given interviews where he talked about how he felt like he was out coached and he didn't make enough adjustments. All the things you're talking about. I think that. There is an element, one of the biggest cliches you will hear everywhere is just you dance with the date you came with. Oh, we, we were good at this. We're just going to keep doing it. We were good at this particular play. We're just going to keep doing it. And as we discussed with Belichick, the way you exist in football and are the best coach in football for 20 years is you don't have that belief at all. You say, if we can win via this, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to reinvent ourselves all the time. And you know, someone said to me once, they said, well, isn't the problem with Bill Belichick that unlike Bill Walsh and some of these guys, he doesn't have a signature innovation. He doesn't have a signature, oh, well, you know, he invented the West Coast offense or he invented the 3-4 defense or this particular thing. And it's like, no, Bill Belichick invented himself. He invented Bill Belichick. Mm. And that's the best. I mean, that it is, it's a movable feast. He comes up with a new thing every single week. The reason he has no innovations is because he has way too many in- innovations for us to actually pinpoint any. God, I just love hearing you talk about this stuff so much. Because there's, it, listen, if you're still listening and you're a cook or you're a chef, I don't see how you can't find something to take to make you better. Because this whole McVeigh thing, like yeah. I've been guilty of that. You're like, fuck, I didn't move fast enough, yeah. and it takes a while to get that perspective. And I hope that he does because. I agree. Like, I love watching his teams, but it's been tough this year to watch. But that's what happens. Well, the other problem is committing too much to one idea. So they signed Todd Gurley to a huge contract. Now they've signed Jared Goff to a huge contract. That seems like they went all in on last year's team. And I think that the lesson of Bill Belichick in a lot of ways is don't ever get too committed to anything. Sign Tom Brady and kind of leave the rest up to you know, pay as you go, basically. And I think that's the interesting thing about Belichick is how often he will cut a guy or trade a guy. I mean, he all he really cares about is putting together the best team for that particular year. I was having this conversation with Marguerite Mariscal, our CEO at Momofuku, mm-hmm. and one of my great weaknesses is I don't know when to move on from something because I have this, number one, I get too attached to something where I believe eventually it will work. And would one of Belichick's great strengths be not that he doesn't make mistakes. He's able to identify a draft mistake and be like, we fucked up. Let's cut it. Let's go. All the time. So humility is the underrated part of Bill Belichick. Nobody talks about it. There are so many instances where he'll cut a first round pick after a couple of years, cut a second round pick. Nobody wants to do that because they don't want to look bad. They want to hold on to a first round pick until his fifth year option and then say, hey, we gave it a shot. But you know, just give him as many opportunities as he can to prove that you were right. Belichick doesn't care about that. He will cut a first-round pick after two years. He does not care. I mean, I think that's that's really the the amazing part of it. And it, it, you know, a little bit again comes down to how much job security he has. I think that if any other coach, maybe other than Andy Reid or Pete Carroll, started operating like that, people would say, "What the, what the hell are you doing?" Mm. Um, but I also just think it's it's confidence in knowing exactly what football should look like. Um. I didn't expect to go to all coaches, but I guess that's what I'm trying to be a little bit more of, I guess. Sure. I don't know, but what are your thoughts on John Harbaugh? I think that it is as fun a coaching job as there has been this decade. I think that 
The way that I view it is that the Ravens, instead of, again, complaining that Lamar Jackson can't do this, this, or this, they're celebrating Lamar Jackson. That scheme is amazing. Their ability to run the ball as much as he is, their ability to draft around him and go all in on him, on it was a risk. This was, there was no law that said Lamar Jackson had to be this good. They saw that he had the potential to be good, they did everything they could to surround him with talent. They went all in on scheme. They promoted a guy, Greg Roman, offensive coordinator, who had some experience with running quarterbacks in the past. And they said, you know what? We're going to make this a Lamar Jackson franchise. And that is so instructive to any other team that either is complaining about the franchise quarterback or upset he can't do X, Y, or Z. They went all in and understood exactly what it took to make him a franchise quarterback. Because I think if you gave Lamar Jackson to 28 head coaches, they would fail. I think there's about only four, maybe five coaches who would do what John Harbaugh is doing. I think it's amazing. I think it it comes down again to humility. I think that, you know, John Harbaugh was a special teams coach. And he had can, some, can you explain why yeah. that's an important characteristic? Well, so th- this is actually something that I've heard a lot about. And I actually wish I'd talked about it more. But so most head coaches were either offensive or defensive coordinators. Special teams means you're in charge of kicking, punt return, punting, kick return, all this stuff. And what ends up happening with those guys, I've heard coaches say this before, special teams coaches are the great inefficiency because those are the guys that only get to deal with the scraps. They don't get to pick their players like other, they get to pick the the punter or the kicker. But 80% 80% of roster decisions are not made with special teams in mind. They're, they're offense and defense decisions, and then the head coach or the offense coordinator says, hey, this is your new gunner on punt returns, or this is your new left tackle on punt returns, whatever it is, on punt team. And you have to adapt every single week. It's almost like what we're talking about with Belichick. You're running a fire drill every single play. There's so many moving parts. And so the ability to have to adapt like that every single week and get your brain in that mold is really important when you're head coach because you're always running a fire drill when you're head coach because so many different things are happening. And so I've heard special teams coaches are the underrated part of the coaching pool and no one ever hires them because of how their brains have to be shaped. They're just more open to things. They have to be. They have to be. Okay, well, we had our best we had our best punt returner. Oh wait, he got cut because he wasn't a good receiver. Well, we have a new punt returner. Oh, we'll figure this out. I mean, Oh, well, let's have uh, this guy return punts. Oh, actually, he's become too good of a receiver, and now you don't want to get him hurt. Okay, new punt returner. You're dealing with like 30 guys who are playing special teams, and their roles are being changed by things completely out of your control, against your wishes sometimes. And so you, you literally have to be thinking about a million different things at once. I think about someone that's a special team coach, and you explaining this to me, like we had the chef Brooks Heedley, who's the chef at Superiority mm-hmm. Burger, one of the best chefs I think in the world. And he literally has a restaurant that's like 200 square feet. Yeah. And he has to make it work with nothing. I oftentimes tell myself and my my team that if I didn't have the first Momofuku noodle bar that was 600 square feet, I'm not here today. You got to make something out of nothing. Yep. And it's something that you teach younger cooks when I worked at really good restaurants. The best restaurants are the people that made family meal out of nothing. And that's now my characteristic that I see for someone that's going to have a a solid trajectory or be great in the cooking industry is 
were they someone that took very seriously family meal. If you can't feed your staff, you're not going to give a shit about a paying customer. So when I hear Jim Harbaugh speak at the press conferences or whatever, I'm always like moved because I'm like, this guy is how a chef should be thinking. Can you elaborate a little bit about what and how he does his job? Yeah. So as a head coach, essentially what they did was they realized that Lamar Jackson was going to be running quarterback. So they added speed basically everywhere around him. They drafted a guy named Hollywood Brown, who's a wide receiver. Uh, They got him some tight end help. And really, they're just they're running the ball at a clip not seen since the 1970s. And this is, again, one of those those bits of conventional wisdom that we thought couldn't be toppled, which is, oh, you can't run a quarterback that much. Well, you can if you, A, can pass the ball enough to keep the defense off you, but B, you're smart enough about getting out of bounds and getting down that you're not taking those massive, massive hits. I mean, the problem is not the running. The problem is the hits. Mm. That's sort of where it comes from. You know, I've talked a lot with John Harbaugh about kind of his upbringing in the sport. You know, his brother obviously played quarterback at Michigan. His father was a assistant under Bo Schembeck or a lot of run-heavy stuff. I think that he likes the old-school stuff. And I think that this is important because I think John Harbaugh liked the old-school stuff. And when he gets Lamar Jackson, it's not about running the old-school stuff. It's about taking the principles he learned with the old-school and making it new. Mm. And I think that that's the important, you know, there's no, no new football play. There's too many rules about guys on the line of scrimmage and all this stuff where you're not actually just going to come up with a completely different play, but you can take old plays and make them significantly better uh, by updating them. You know, it reminds me, Dan Orlovsky, who I think is an absolute genius. He's on ESPN. He once says something about Sean McVay to me that I, I think about all the time. It's everyone has the same blue suit and Sean McVay added a pocket square. Okay. <laughs> And that's how I feel about with John Harbaugh now, where he's taking these plays that he's always had, and he's just adding a little bit of wrinkle. He's celebrating Lamar Jackson. He's letting Lamar Jackson be the best Lamar he can be, and that's made all the difference. He said something recently because last game, uh, they went for it on fourth down, and even before, I feel like he's been making the right analytic decision. Yeah. That has been always amazing to me when I see the announcers like sort of shocked because yeah. he's going against conventional wisdom. How come he's embraced? And he's, he actually said something, I think, uh, I paraphrase, he's like, I'm not following analytics enough. Right, exactly. So first of all, he trusted his guys. Lamar Jackson said, I want to go for it, and he went for it. And I think that's, I think there's such a lesson in that because I don't think coaches do that enough where if Lamar Jackson thinks he can get those two yards, he can probably get those two yards, okay? If he, if he has enough feel for the game, because you're not going to stick your neck out unless you can really get it. And I think Lamar Jackson's so hard to tackle, he probably knew he was going to get those two yards. And of course, he scored the touchdown, the go-ahead touchdown, and then they won the game in Seattle in a really um, heated environment against you know another MVP candidate in Russell Wilson. So he is an example of someone, I, you know, John Harbaugh's in his 50s, and he wants new information, and he wants analytics. We've talked about it. And I think that that's one of the things about the guys now who are relevant. And I would say that's the old guys, Bill Belichick, Andy Reid, and John Harbaugh. All three of them are obsessed with new information. All three of them, when I ask them about either college schemes or, you know, I actually haven't talked to Andy in a little bit. He's, he's a little more media shy. Um, but when I talk to people with the Chiefs about analytics, they always have answers. And I think that when you pair football smarts, which they all three have, with new just urgent ideas like analytics. I think that's that's where the actual magic happens. This is going to seem a trivial, redundant question, but I think it's important because I'm sure there's going to be maybe a handful of chefs listening to this. Mm-hmm. What are the characteristics of a coach? If you just describe the characteristics of coaches that are 
you know, the embodiment of the new and kicking ass. What are the things that some coaches that are just dinosaurs doing wrong? Sure. So number one is trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. That is absolutely not having the personnel and trying to run a scheme that just doesn't fit. The other thing is just getting lazy and not understanding. I mean, I, this happened with Greg Schiano in Tampa Bay, where he was the head coach. He came from college. He was running very basic schemes, and he never got off them. And again, once you put something on film in the NFL because of how much tape is watched, everybody sees it and everybody will attack it. You really cannot put the same thing on film twice unless you mix it up enough to where people don't know what's coming. You can run the same play, but you have to have different looks. You have to put this guy on the other side. You cannot just keep running the same thing over and over again. And so I think standing still in the NFL is going backwards every single time. And so I think there's it's part of that. And I think that, you know, I had a great talk with the coach of the Bills, uh, Sean McDermott. They're, they're the early season darlings in the AFC. And he's now doing 360 reviews familiar with those with his players. Wow. And the reason he said this was he said, you know what? You know what I found out from us talking to old coaches was I would talk to fired coaches or guys who got run out of town. And they would either wait to ask somebody what they were doing wrong until after they were fired. Or no one wanted to come up to them because they assumed that the boss had heard everything or whatever. But so then these coaches would get fired. They'd be, you know, packing their bags out to the parking lot. And then somebody would come up to them and tell them what the problem was. And Sean McDermott said, I don't want that to happen to me. Mm. I want the criticism to come to me in my face. And if every single player, and this example I use, every single player is saying, man, when we travel on the West Coast, the plane leaves way too early and we're, we're always tired in the West Coast and we lose. That was the example, one of the examples he gave her. You know, we don't get enough Mondays off after a game, something like that. He doesn't want to find that out after he gets fired. Coaches have thin skin. They're human, right? Most coaches have thin skin and don't want to hear that stuff. And when you hear somebody like Sean McDermott talk about that and say, I want that criticism, you know, what, the, their GM, Brandon Bean, talked about this too. You're giving these guys a lot of money. now. They have leverage. This isn't 1970 where you can just boss these guys around and give them no say. Okay, And so the, giving players a voice now is so important, whether that's on fourth and two, like John Harbaugh, or whether it's, hey, how are we going to travel? How are we going to do this? How, when are we going to practice? How are you guys feeling? That stuff is so much more important. So I would say it's a combination of just not updating your stuff, either thinking standing still is okay, and then just you know ignoring the needs of your players. Wow. This is very inspirational to me right now to hear all this stuff because <laughs> you coach the, it's like you coach a team. Yeah, no, because we talked about this the last time we were on the podcast. If something as antiquated and as stubborn and machismo as football can adopt change, yeah, and you can see it be very effective with the Harbaugh's and the Belichick's of the world, you know, cooking as a industry is so backwards in so many yeah. ways that that's why I really do believe it's a good model for myself and a lot of my peers to follow. And the whole idea that things are cyclical and, yeah. you know, like it causes me like literally Jim Harbaugh going back to just running the ball yeah, and John Harbaugh, John, I'm sorry, yeah, John right. Harbaugh, Jim is at Michigan. Um, I swear to God, I was like, I'm just going to start cooking with a microwave again. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's you. amazing. I'm, Cause like I'm spending a lot of time at home yeah. cooking with, for my son and I'm short on time. And you just take the conventional wisdom now of a microwave. People will say, that's that's garbage, it's bad for you, blah, blah, blah. But I'm now developing a lot of recipes that are, I think, unbelievable because no one thinks it's even useful anymore. Yeah. 
That's it, great. That happened. And also, so the fullback is back in the NFL. And this is an extension of what we're talking about. So the number, the two teams that use the fullback the most are both undefeated at time of recording, the Patriots and the San Francisco 49ers. And the reason the fullback is back is because defenses got really skinny and really fast because they they wanted to adjust to the offense. So what do you do? You just throw a 230-pound goon at them and and just go at these linebackers. Kyle Juszczyk is the guy in San Francisco, and he's just like he he's just going out and, and cracking skulls basically. And that's that's what you do when defenses try to adjust to the faster pace of the game. You throw bulk at them, and I think that that's the cyclical nature and how the pendulum swings. Where it's okay, offenses get skinny and fast, defenses get skinny and fast. What do you do? You throw just absolute wrecking balls at them. And I think that's that's the amazing little mini innovation this year where all it takes is one guy to wreck your defense. And then, by the way, the second layer of that innovation is once you have the fullback on the field, you pass because defenses start to throw more bulk at the offense. Well, I mean, it really is true. It's the same kind of trends in food. Yeah, uh, Everything's cyclical, but you're not going back to exactly how it was like with Joe Gibbs' offense. Right. You are... Updating it. When, if you look at, I, I watch the catch every once in a while. The the San Francisco Dallas game a couple, you know, from thirty years ago. The play that that begat the catch, you wouldn't recognize it on an NFL field. I mean, it was like you know, three guys with their hands in the dirt in the backfield. I mean, it looks like nineteen fifty, and that was just you know, that was shortly before I was born. Tom Brady was in the stands for that game, <laughs> and it looks like a different sport. But if you can take those ideas and pair them with what we know now about the spread and how to how to work defenses, that's where the real innovation comes. And I am genuinely trying to understand this because I am taking ideas from the sport you cover <laughs> and trying to apply it to cooking, which is insane as that sounds. So anyway, um, anything else? Like, what do you think the prediction is? Who do you think is going to make it to the Super Bowl? I think the Patriots. I think that the Patriots' ability to build a defense— so essentially, NFL defenses have given up, okay, league-wide. There's 30 teams that have said, we're just going to build a defense that's modern and gives up a lot of points and, and call it a day because the rules have neutralized. I've talked to coaches about this. There is an accepted norm where they're saying, we're just, we can only get so good at defense, okay? Bill Belichick didn't buy into that, and he built one of the best defenses in decades, right? I mean, this is maybe since the 2000 Ravens, he's got the best defense. And so uh, I think it has to be the Patriots from the AFC. And then I kind of like the Niners. I kind of like what the Niners are doing. I mean, this is a team, you talk about innovation. I mean, that's that's a team, you know, they're in Silicon Valley. They've hired Silicon Valley people in the past. Uh, there's some real innovation there just as far as how they structure their contracts, as far as the schemes they're running. Kyle Shannon's a really good coach. And then they, they again, they have a great defense too. I think that one of the things about the Niners and one of the things about the Patriots and th- those great defenses, they actually bucked conventional wisdom in the sense that I think that no one thought those types of defenses were possible, and they are. That's fascinating to me. To win in today's modern era, you actually have to go back in time. Uh, yeah, and not only back in time, but just go back to, I think people thought the game had to be played a certain way. And Bill Belichick going all in on defense is just an incredible Belichick flex because that would be the if you were to rank the things you would go all in on. Number one would be quarterback. Number two would be you know a surrounding cast around the quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. Coaching staff probably third. I think teams would have defense dead last because there's just no way to win with a defense like that. And Bill Belichick is is again bucking conventional wisdom. It's unbelievable. This might be. This will be his best defense ever. And for that to happen in 2019, where a quarterback rating, you know, if you look at quarterback rating throughout history, 
it has gone up essentially every single year since 2011 to where a mediocre passer like Kyle Allen, somebody like that, they are way better than the greats of the 80s. Way better. Because again, a competent quarterback now can look like Joe Montana. A competent quarterback now can look like Dan Marino, um, at least from a statistical standpoint. And so defenses basically said, eh, there's nothing we can do. And Belichick said, nah, we're going we're gonna to stop him. So you, you have the Pats winning it all again. Yeah, the Pats. I, the, I will pick the Pats to win it until Brady retires or Belichick retires or both. I've seen too much. Anyway, uh, Kevin, thank you for joining me. really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you, David. Well, that was my conversation with Kevin Clark, um, one of the most knowledgeable minds out there, and I can't get enough of his insights. Um, We're going to transition to the other Kevin, Kevin O'Connor, expert NBA analyst for The Ringer, But before we bring in KOC, here's a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura CEO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee shop, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Great Jones. When's the last time you replaced your pots and pans? Great Jones is a startup that makes fantastic cookware, really great value for the quality. It's the cookware I use and love at home, Plus, the founders are two women who are transforming the industry. Great Jones products start at $45 and include a ceramic nonstick skillet, a big stainless steel stock pot, and a colorful Dutch oven that looks as good as it works. It's a one-stop shop for nice cookware. Upgrading your tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking, especially as you're getting ready for Thanksgiving. I actually take my blue Great Jones Dutch oven, which at $145 costs a lot less than others of the same quality, right from my stovetop and put it on the table. It looks great and it cooks great food too. Great Jones has figured out how to make products that look both good and work extremely well. Go to greatjones.com and use the code DAVE, D-A-V-E, at checkout for 15% off. That's a great discount for a holiday gift or a way to upgrade your kitchen pots and pans. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware and invest in nice stuff. Again, that's greatjones.com, code Dave, for 15% off. A great deal. Today's show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. A good outfit starts with the basics, and Mack Weldon is the premium men's essential brand you should be shopping. Without even looking, I can tell you that Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. These aren't your regular basics. Mack Weldon has a line of silver underwear 
and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. The reason why GQ called their best-selling 18-hour jersey boxer briefs a perfect fitting pair. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. I'm a big fan of basics. It's why Mack Weldon is my staple for t-shirts and underwear. Mack Weldon's got a great website, makes it very easy for shopping. For 20% off your first order, that's an amazing deal. Enter promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code Chang. That's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com with the promo code Chang for 20% off your first order. I'm with KOC. One of my favorite podcasts last year was getting to talk to you about the revolution in basketball. And I thought maybe it's a good opportunity to indulge myself, not necessarily the (laughs) listeners, to be able to see what is the lay of the land in the NBA and what's changing. So what are the things that are going to be trends this year in the NBA that people should be expected. So I think this year in the NBA, it's less so on the court and more so what happened this summer. And what we saw was the breakup of the Golden State Warriors, which was this trio of stars with Stephen Curry, Klay Thompson, and Kevin Durant on the offensive end with a fourth star on defense and Draymond Green. Kevin Durant ended up leaving for the Brooklyn Nets with Kyrie Irving, who left the Boston Celtics. And Klay Thompson is out for most of, if not all of the season. And what happened was, Now we have a league full of star duos headlined by LeBron James and Anthony Davis with the Lakers and Kawhi Leonard and Paul George with the LA Clippers. So now we don't necessarily have a a clearly defined singular favorite above all everybody else like we had with the Warriors, like we had in the early 2010s with LeBron and the Miami Heat. Now we have a league really of parody. And that creates a situation this season where it feels like anything is possible in terms of who can make the playoffs, who can actually win the finals. And that's exciting. With this change in terms of players hopping, right? There seems to be more player mobility and freedom Mm -hmm. than ever before. Who is that pissing off? It depends on who you ask. I think for me as a consumer of the sport, as a fan, I love the movement. But then, you know, you ask my boss and he has mentioned that he misses certain times where players just stayed with the place for 10, 12, 15 years. Like we just saw with Dirk Nowitzki with the Dallas Mavericks. I can't imagine who that next guy will be already with Giannis Antetokounmpo, the star player in the Milwaukee Bucks. Two years away from his free agency, we're talking about where is he going to go? There was recently a a rumor uh, or a quote by him in the Harvard Business School Journal that if the Bucks don't meet his expectations this year. It'll be harder for him to sign that contract extension. So I personally love it. I think it constantly changing in the league creates this new fresh feeling entering each season. But there are those traditionalists who look at the league now and be like, yeah, nobody's loyal. Everybody's always looking for the next situation, the next team, the next place to go. But ultimately, I think it's overall a positive that players have taken control of what they want to do on that side. But on the flip side of that, that front offices are often empowered by team ownership to do what they think is best for the franchise rather than sticking with something that just isn't working. So I think this freedom on both sides is overall a good thing. And this is the new norm moving forward. Unless there's a labor shortage and 
unions get involved. Of course. And that's the only way. What, what really changed was, you know, before the CBA and I think 09, the collective bargaining agreement, that year contracts were set up to seven years long. So teams thought by having shorter contracts, now they're four or five years at the most, that on the team side, they would end up having more control when in fact, having shorter contracts has only allowed players to move more frequently rather than signing those long-term six or seven-year deals. One of the things that I've been really wrestling with ever since I've become a business owner, like a if I own an NBA team, that's essentially being a business owner, entrepreneur, <laughs> there's no more loyalty in cooking. Hmm. When I started out, if you didn't finish a year, you were dead. The fear that you might be blacklisted and you'd have to go to a, a state and far away to to sort of rehabilitate your career, there was this idea that if you didn't spend minimum a year, really two to three years, you were in trouble because the restaurants and the chefs that you work for really controlled your career. It was a lot like more like Red Auerbach back in the day. And I can't tell you what happened, but something happened over the past 15 years where that switched. Cooks today will hop restaurants whenever they want to, and they know they're going to be employed. A lot of times you'll have people that just want to work one station or learn one dish from a restaurant, and then they do, and then they'll bolt. So what I've been, I initially was complaining. I was like, oh, it's this generational thing. But then I realized I just sound like one of these assholes that is always every generation being like these damn young kids. And then it dawned on me that if everyone has these problems, then I need to do a better job of creating a better organization top down where people want to work with us and don't want to leave. And I don't have an exact answer, but what are some of the things that NBA teams are doing to make sure players are going to stay? Well, it's interesting, you know, what you said about somebody learning at one station at one restaurant and then changing brings to mind what I've heard about D'Angelo Russell, who was a player who was last with the Brooklyn Nets, ended up getting signed and traded to the Golden State Warriors. And the way it was described to me by a source was that this summer, he really targeted going to Golden State and that D'Angelo Russell, who is in his young 20s, views it as an opportunity to learn in a system on a team in a franchise that has had a lot of success recently. So for him, he looks at it as like an educational experience to grow as a player. And it's interesting with him because with Golden State, what do you do to at some point keep him maybe when his Mm -hmm. contract is up in four years? Because there's already, he himself has said he wants to team up with two of his best friends in the league, Carl Anthony Towns of the Minnesota Timberwolves and Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. That's something he hopes to do someday. And he could have signed with Timberwolves this year. He could have just done it now. But I I think he wanted almost that learn at the the station in Golden State first rather than going somewhere else where maybe the experience isn't quite as good. So what what does Golden State over the next four years, I mean, maybe they have to position themselves to get those other guys, whether it's Towns or, or, or Devin Booker. There's a lot of things to elaborate here about this topic of loyalty, but I want to go a little bit deeper in D'Angelo Russell. Was he number two draft pick out of yeah. Ohio State? Yep. Drafted and to the Lakers. Things didn't go that well. Mm-mm. People thought he was a bust. P- people may know him as the person who, uh, right. with a Nick Young situation. <laughs> <laughs> and he was young, 18, 19, didn't really develop the mm-hmm. way people thought it would be. Got traded and sort of rehabilitated his career at Brooklyn. What happened? Did he just grow up and mature? Or what happened? So it's interesting with D'Angelo. So the people who know about the camera story with Nick Young, um, 
I heard in high school he was a super good kid, hard worker, loved basketball. And then in LA, where he got drafted, he just really became super immature, super ego- egotistical. And I think with him in Brooklyn, he sort of refound who he may have been in the first place. And that was a humble, hardworking, good kid, where maybe it was just him being a teenage kid, 18, 19 years old in Los Angeles, playing for the Lakers, playing with Kobe Bryant as a rookie. Maybe that just wasn't the best time for him in his life to be there. So I do think a lot of it was a, a natural maturation that anybody has in their young 20s that actually happened with him in Brooklyn. But not only that, though, it was really the first time he had stability with an organization. The Nets had Kenny Atkinson and still do have Kenny Atkinson as their head coach, who has been there for a couple of years now with a front office that actually knows what they're doing. And so for D'Angelo, I think having that guidance from a front office and coaching perspective with some veteran teammates, that certainly helped him along. And, and he's going to get even more of that education now with the Golden State Warriors. You think he's got his head on straight now? Yeah. Seems that way from what I've heard. So, it does seem that way, yeah. And, and that's what I always have to remind myself with cooks. You start in this business relatively young. Not everyone. You mature. I've matured. So it can happen. So I'm we, rooting We all for do. At, yeah. at every age, we're always, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we're all always growing. Which is why I'm rooting for Russell. Yeah, me too. No doubt about it. Why do you think that is, though, that in the cooking world, people are changing teams, if you will, so rapidly like we see now in basketball? Is it, is it just a generational thing? I actually have come full circle. I think it's because the organizations were so poorly run. That's actually one of the reasons. So it's more of a self-awareness of like, this isn't good for me and more no, we, an empowerment. And we, we, we need are? to build better ways to make people better, you know, mm-hmm. and also just be more open to how we evaluate talent. I mean, I know the Spurs are not that powerful this year, but for that run that they had, they had a great organization and they were a small market team. And I really admire what they did and what Popovich sort of had as a strategy to build that team. I, I genuinely, it's one of the reasons why I have Popovich as like a, a we have photos of him at, at Wyo, our restaurant in the Seaport, because a lot of the cooks, we actually want to be more like him. Have you met Pop ever? I have not. Okay. I know he's a big foodie. Yeah, in the that, was, line. that was my follow up. I was um, going to say. I, see, if I saw him and I would not talk to him. <laughs> I would have to be like, I don't want to know you, but I bet you he's just, you want to bring him over the bottle of wine or anything. (laughs) Um, And you know what, like whether they made a mistake with Kawhi or not, that's a whole nother example. Like maybe it's not enough and there's some things you can't control and people are going to leave. So I think we're in a correction and we, as a restaurant industry have to figure out how to better serve our cooks when before it was, they serve us. Because that's how I learned, right? And that's definitely changed. And one of the one of the other things that's definitely changed too was you brought it up with Brooklyn Nets and New York City. It was what pretty safe to assume that everyone would want to play for the Knicks, but it seems like no one's wanted to play for the Knicks for years. Nobody, no. And that's one of the reasons why is because James Dolan being owner and the dysfunction that sort of comes down from him in his role as an owner for the team. Always a changing front office. Phil Jackson, uh, he was a great former coach of the Lakers who went to the Knicks to run that franchise and essentially ran into the ground over his three, four years there. They had a nice young star player in Chris Epps Porzingis who... Phil Jackson had the worst relationship with, and that was eventually led to their their divorce with him, the, the Knicks trading Chris Porzingis to the Mavericks. Um, 
they are a franchise that needs to totally rehabilitate their image over the next two years because for them, not to get too nerdy with you know salary cap numbers here, they could become a player in free agency. They'll have the money to sign some top players in 2021. But for them, in order to actually get interest from those players, they need to change their image of who, what, what players, fans, executives perceive them to be. People need to look at the Knicks as a team that's on the rise. And right now, they look like a team that has just been flat at the bottom of the barrel for two decades because they have been. That's what they have been. So they need to change that. I give this example to a lot of my chef friends that are in New York. And whether they study sports or not, I always tell them, and I have to tell myself as the cautionary tale, Phil Jackson. Mm. Don't be like Phil. (laughs) Because there was a period where everyone wanted to be like Phil, right? The Zen master. What happened? Can you elaborate? To, if someone that's a cook or in the restaurant industry, they know nothing about basketball, because if you can use this opportunity to understand something about Phil Jackson, I think there's lessons to be learned, and I'm not trying to like disparage <laughs> Phil Jackson, but I really do think about Phil Jackson a lot because it is a cautionary tale for me because he was like, we're playing the fucking triangle offense. And we're going to do it. Hire Derek Fisher to run it. Yeah. Former player. Of former his. player. doesn't no. matter. We're going to institute it. And it's a reminder of hubris. And mm. can you explain again, like, how and why that became so outdated, even though it made him win six championships? I think it was largely the the changing nature of the game today. For what it's worth, we still do see triangle concepts in the league, the Warriors. Can you explain what the triangle see, concept is? It's, it's exactly that. It's essentially a triangle with, you know, three players essentially running the offense rather than, like, say, traditional pick and roll, which is a quote-unquote two-man game. Triangle will be three players running it. It's just very simple. But in regards to the Knicks, though, I think for him it was a bit of stubbornness. It was a bit of, you know, hiring Derek Fisher to run the offense that they, he wanted him to run rather than perhaps adapting the system to the personnel. I think you see this across sports. The best teams, the Patriots are a team that comes to mind. They always adapted their system to the personnel, not try to squeeze the personnel into the system. And with Phil Jackson, I think there was that tension between his system that has always worked and the actual players that he had. But again, though, I still think so much of it with Jackson comes down to just poor decisions, like signing Joakim Noah to a four-year, $75 million deal when Noah was towards the end of his career. Yeah, the, the, that's the big difference in uh, my analogies is that <laughs> there's a salaries like that in Kirky. Oh, that would be awesome. Um <laughs> But there's, of course, there's probably, there's still, it's all relative though. Yes. There's no four years, 70, 75 million, but there's probably like a four year, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. To get granular, what kind of player does well in the triangle offense? Here's the thing though. Like, is it the player or is it the system? Because the two players you think of are Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Is it the player or is it the system? I think there's a strong argument to be made that in the case of Phil Jackson, that it's not necessarily the triangle that made those teams. It's the collection of players that he had. Mm. It's like with Golden State, they may have some triangle offense, but this team could play any style. You could have Stephen Curry in this motion-based offense with a lot of movement on and off the ball, but you could also use Stephen Curry in a heavy pick-and-roll offense with a big man screening for him, rumbling down the lane, and Stephen Curry could still have a lot of success. System matters so much, and coaching does matter, but I tend to think of when I think of good coaching, I tend to think of game-to-game adjustments or lineups that they run out in order to create an advantage, almost more so 
than the system itself mm. because there's so much overlap with what teams do historically. And and now it's more just a, a like we talked about in last year's pod, a change in just the frequency of shots that you're getting from three. But the systems themselves aren't necessarily drastically different from team to team. This is, again, going to be a like a stretch, but I actually do see this, and I do think about the triangle offense a lot. Again, I don't know how much basketball I watched as a kid or was playing video games, but I always think about Phil Jackson trying to impose a system that doesn't work, and I talk to my own chefs about this. Every time, there's always, as a transient nature, you're always going to have times when cooks stay, and there's going to be times when there seems like a mass exodus. That's just the rhythm and the ebb and flow of a lot of kitchens. It is a system-oriented thing. No matter what kind of kitchen you run, whether it's McDonald's or a three-mission-star restaurant, you have a system. What I see time and time again as a failure is when you get a new batch of cooks and a new sort of new talent, no one ever adjusts their— The people that do well are the ones that adjust their system. And a lot of times, I always have to remind my team, make your recipe simpler. More simple. Keep it basic. Get them some reps, and then you can make it a little mm. bit more difficult. But you got to know the strengths and weaknesses of your team. Yeah. Like I'm always accessing, mm. uh, analyzing the the what's a weakness and a strength of my cooks, and being so dumb and stubborn headed myself, I've made every mistake under the sun by saying you better do it this way, follow this way. That doesn't work anymore at all. They will just walk out. <laughs> this sort of ties back to D'Angelo Russell. Yeah. Russell is a is a pick and roll player. That is where he is at his best on the ball. But with Golden State, he's going to a team that does not run a lot of pick and roll. Steve Kerr himself, the head coach of the Warriors, has admitted that he doesn't like running pick and roll because he thinks guys that aren't handling the ball fall out of a rhythm. They lose interest. Maybe that then impacts their effort on the defensive end of the floor. So they haven't run much pick and roll, and they had a heck of a lot of success doing it with five straight finals, three championships. Like There's no knock in what they've done. However, now it's a brand new team. A lot of those veteran players that that shine in the old system, Andre Gadala, Sean Livingston are gone. Now those star players, Kevin Durant, is gone. But now you have a nice new young player in D'Angelo Russell with a, with a bunch of other young players as well. Does Steve Kerr thus adapt his system to this new talent that he has in D'Angelo Russell? It's only been one game that we've seen them play at the time of our How conversation. How bad do they look? That was pretty awful. But also, the Clippers are unbelievable. So but it, <laughs> it, it, it's like, I think Golden State's going to win, still win a lot of games. It's just maybe they're not going to be beating those elite teams like the Clippers. Why is it that the Clippers, that basically have a brand new team as well, even though they have a lot of the supporting cast from last year, why are they gelling much faster than the Warriors? <laughs> I, I think it's really a talent thing, ultimately. I think it is, there's a lot of continuity there with their bench. For example, they have Lou Williams, a point guard, and Montrez Harrell, a center. And last year, neither of those guys are big names. They're not LeBron James. They're not Kevin Durant. They're not, they're not a uh, name that a casual fan knows. But those two actually had one of the best pick-and-roll combinations in the league with Lou Williams handling the ball and Montrez Harrell, the big man, screening and rolling for him. So you still retain that with some other players that came back from this last season, like Landry Shamit, a great shooter who can do some stuff off the dribble for you. Then you're adding some veterans who know what they're doing and have experience. Patrick Patterson, you have a guy like him, or Jermichael Green. You're adding proven guys who understand their role to an already existing successful system. Whereas with Golden State, 
dad are just a bunch of young kids who a lot of them are rookies, like Jordan Poole from Michigan. He doesn't know what he's doing. For him, like a guy who's always dominated the ball, pounded the ball, now he's playing in a system where he needs to move the ball within half a second. Why do rookie, Why are rookies so bad? They've been playing basketball their entire life, and they're good because they got drafted. Why does it take them so long to get acclimated? It's funny because I think we're seeing rookies be more productive early on more than maybe ever before, but it's still tough to actually make a positive impact. And we still so very rarely see rookie players make impacts in the playoffs when like you're trimming your rotation to eight or nine guys. But in regards to Golden State, some of their young guys, like Jordan Poole, it's just a, A, it's a talent thing. How good is he really? You need to prove you have your talent. But B, like what you've done your whole life, it's reversing your your learned habits that for him, he's had for 19, 20 years of his life, you know, being alive. And then however long he's been playing basketball, changing your habits all of a sudden in a matter of months being drafted to this team in June and then having to go out in the court in September for workouts, then in October for real games against athletes and teams like the Clippers that have been together and have great chemistry. It's so many factors that go into it that makes it hard for a lot of players to make that adjustment. When I was working at a French restaurant, Daniel Blude, and I was a ter- I just wasn't fitting in that well, I learned that the consensus amount of time for a new cook that enters an established kitchen is about at minimum six months. Wow. So mm. I was told you're not mm. going to be very useful to the kitchen for at least six months. At least. Why is that? And and, and cooking. It's the same thing as really? you just said. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you know how to do everything, yeah. but everything's different. There's a different rhythm, a culture, the dishes might be similar, but this person, the chef might want more acid or they organize things differently. And it takes time to get acclimated. And it's still a team. Like the flow and movement in a kitchen is all different. So I always have to wonder what makes someone acclimate faster than someone else. And I have no fucking idea. Do you have any idea why it works for some players and not? I mean, I would be curious about, from a psychological perspective, is there some personality trait that's common amongst people who are more adaptable and going to a new setting? Or is it more the environment that they're going to that actually makes it easier for them. Like, 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 say, person A may struggle to adapt in one situation, but they may seamlessly do it in another that has better infrastructure. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, like, I, I just wonder if there's there's some type of personality trait that allows for certain situations. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a question that will never be answered. You brought up a player that I, I love. He's on my fantasy team, and I can never pronounce his first name. You said Montre- Montrez Harrell. Montrez Harrell. I just call him Harrell. <laughs> I know it was a second round draft. You pick. Get, it's like you get a there's a Z in there. A, you get a, it's the L in the in the first name M O N T R Z L. Drop the Mon- L, just Montrez, Montrez, or just Trez. Trez. That, that's what people call. Him. Oh, yeah, Trez. really? Trez, yeah, Trez, Harrell. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. God, so much easier. <laughs> Sorry, Trez. Second round draft pick, good player, mm-hmm. but would he be successful on another team? Yeah. It's interesting because he got drafted to a team, the Houston Rockets, that in theory, from a basketball sense, would have been the absolute perfect fit for him. Um, They're a team that runs a lot of that high pick and roll with James Harden and now Russell Westbrook, who they added this summer, where he can just set screens for that point guard and just roll down the lane, throw down dunks. And in, in his second year, he did start to make progress with Houston, but they ended up making a trade with the Clippers, and now he's in a new situation there. And for him, I think it was just his first year when he struggled in Houston, 
It was more or less just the fact that he wasn't ready making reads in the floor. The one thing that he's gotten really good at with the Clippers now is you're not just a dunker. You're not just a guy who's dunking over everybody. You're, you're, you're making powerful finishes around the rim. You also need to be able to make good reads, whether it's with screening, with the angles that you're screening, or when you receive the ball away from the rim, actually being able to dribble once or twice and finish with touch, or being able to locate a teammate who may be open because someone's protecting against you from getting an easy dunk. And with Harold, that's been the greatest area of growth for him. It's his ability to survey the floor and make a read. So I think he was drafted into the perfect situation with Houston. And I think here with the Clippers, he's in another good situation. They run a ton of pick and roll too, but it's his personal growth, I think, that has led to his success. So if he he could have developed this way if he stayed at Houston. I think so, yeah. In fact, I, I would be willing to bet that he would have. But ultimately, though... Maybe he wouldn't be putting up these same type of numbers where last year he averaged 16, 17 points per game as a bench player. That, that's a lot. Um, maybe he wouldn't have gotten the opportunity, but also maybe he just wouldn't have had the same type of chemistry with James Harden that he has with Lou Williams. Those guys, it's really amazing. Like When I watch those guys run pick and roll, it's like Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper in a Star is Born level chemistry with those two running pick and roll. Mm. It's crazy. Like, those guys seem destined to run pick-and-roll together, and it works for the Clippers to, you know, league-high efficiency, really, in pick-and-roll. And Trez has—he knows his strengths and his weaknesses, right? Like, I always think He about, understands his game, yes. Yeah, and I, I've always said this when when getting giving advice to someone that's trying to figure out a, a new restaurant to work for, something like that, uh, that's asking me for advice. I'm like, do you know what you're good at and what you're bad at? Because that's going to be very important when you switch out to a new team, which is a new restaurant. And unlike the NBA, there is agency by a cook to decide if they're good enough, they can work anywhere they want. Just because a a restaurant has the best rating and it's famous or number one this, number one that, doesn't mean you're going to thrive there Mm -hmm. because it may not be good for your skill set. So... Whenever I see whatever you say on Twitter or read whatever you say, I'm always thinking about this because it makes my culinary world more exciting, I think. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's like, oh, this is the same shit I'm dealing with every day. In regards to Harold, it's interesting because when he hit free agency, he had a really good first year with the Clippers in the 2017-18 season. Then he goes into free agency. There was not much of a market for him. He signed a two-year, $12 million contract, which by today's standards is not a lot at all for a productive player like Harold. There's not a lot of teams that perhaps would need a guy like him. Most teams want a big man who can shoot. He can't. He, he's somebody who is an interior player and nothing more. In the cooking world, uh, are there specialists? 100%. Like, 100%. Are there specialists? Yeah. yeah. There are people that are like, they only know how to roast meat. <laughs> and there, there are yeah. people that are really good at, at, at rolling pasta and cooking pasta. And that person, for instance, is so crucial to the success of a team and knowing what you're good at. And I always wonder why, and it's critical of my own organization, why we don't move faster at identifying what people are good at or bad at. Because 20 years ago, does Trez have a career in the NBA? Probably, right? Probably, yeah. But I would hope so. Yeah. The <laughs> game's changed a lot, though. But um, yeah, he, I think he would. Um, you had mentioned Durant leaving. And we don't have to go into the defense and how Golden State is in this crazy transition. 
but he's towards uh, Achilles' heel, so it seems like he's spending a lot of time on Twitter, and he started <laughs> responding to someone yeah. about analytics. Mm-hmm. We talked about analytics last yeah. time we were here in the three-point revolution, and you know, it's it's pretty simple. The more you shoot, the better opportunities you have to win, <laughs> right? Um, he seems to be, or take the position that analytics is not important enough. Uh, yeah, Um so basically, Kevin Durant, someone uh, asked him about the value in the mid-range jumper. So it's the inverse of what we talked about. More teams are shooting three-point jumpers because three is more than two. It's it's That's like literally the most basic way of saying it. But the more complex way of talking about it is situation-based. When you take a shot, matters. And the mid-range jumper still has immense value for teams. Like, we just see Kawhi Leonard, who right now is the best player in the game, living from mid-range, largely because of his value and ability to create any shot towards the end of the shot clock. So not only is he an elite scorer from anywhere on the court, but he has the ability to create a shot towards the end of the clock. And for Kevin Durant, it's that same strength. He can create at any time on the court and from anywhere. And KD is speaking from a perspective of a star player where, yes, there is immense value in the mid-range jumper for a player. Even though analytics say the mid-range jumper doesn't matter anymore, even though players shouldn't shoot that, it's not that Kevin Durant shouldn't shoot a mid-range jumper. It's not that Kawhi Leonard shouldn't either. It's that these role players should not be taking those shots early in the clock. They should not be taking those shots when there's a better option on the floor, such as an open three-pointer, such as a cutting player going in for a layup. So for Kevin Durant, it's a little disappointing that he was speaking about it, you know, almost just from his own experience, because he's right. There is value, but for everybody else in the court, that's where the game has changed and will continue to change. And where I think for him, maybe there was an opportunity to say, you know what, I understand why the game has changed. And I wish maybe people looked at it more from a situation where for me, the mid-range still has value, but for some of my teammates, it doesn't. If you want to call that analytics, sure. I think it's really analytics and film go hand in hand here, where it's a no-brainer that mid-range does not have as much value with 20 seconds on the shot clock. Basically, it only is applicable if you're Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard. Well, yeah, I mean, for (laughs) let me say this. I I think with the mid-range jumper fading... It has gone from like a quarter of shots down to whatever it is now. It's not that it's changed for star players. It hasn't. But it has changed for everybody else on the court because of what's valued. Layups, three-pointers, getting to the basket to draw fouls, getting to the free-throw line. For KD, I think there was an opportunity here to have a back-and-forth conversation like, I want to learn why analytics say this and why, for me, it doesn't apply. Because it doesn't apply to KD. It doesn't apply to Kawhi, but applies to everybody else. So I have an analogy that's, to me, almost perfect. <laughs> Some people may not think so. The mid-range jumper in the NBA is, to me, exactly what a tasting menu is in restaurants. Too many people do it. They've now seen, or as a business, like, now it's better to have as many dishes. It's better for the finances to not be structured in this sort of three-hour tasting menu thing. Not everyone can do it. I don't know if that makes perfect sense, but my friend Sat Baines made a comment about it because a lot of people now are saying, don't do tasting menu restaurants. No one wants to eat that way. And I've heard a couple people say that can execute this. And they're like, no, 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 you're right, but some people should, should do it. So that's how I internalized it. 
the chefs that want to do tasting menus, there's literally like maybe like 10% of all the chefs should execute their version of the two-point shot and just like do that. Hmm. It sounds crazy what I'm talking about. I don't know if it makes any sense, so we're going to move <laughs> forward on this. Uh, I, I wanted to end on this. I have a lot of questions to ask you. I saw you the other day at the Ringer offices looking at basketball, mm-hmm. and I don't know what program you had, but it was like— The Synergy Sports. Yeah. yeah. I saw, even though it was like two seconds, I was like, oh, you are looking at this game in a way that very, very few people, even your boss, Bill, probably doesn't look at. And I was like, oh, that's how I look at restaurants when I go out to eat. I don't know how to articulate it to anyone else, but I'm looking for certain things, and I can no longer look at a restaurant, any kind of restaurant, in a way that I, like, I would say a normal diner would. Can you look at basketball without the analytical eyes that you have and the understanding, can you just watch it without breaking it down? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's nice just to s- turn off your brain sometimes. Um, but then again, it's also hard not to watch and think to myself, oh, maybe this is a good article idea. Maybe I should think more about this. Uh, so in that sense, it's, I can't turn it off. But yeah, I, I can sit back and just enjoy a game. Um, but you're always breaking it down. Sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I, think, I think ideas come, but I think sometimes you're deliberately watching a game and like what when you walked into the office the other day I had Synergy Sports open cuz I was rewatching the end of the Oklahoma City Utah Jazz game their opening game together and that was me deliberately sitting down and watching looking for how Utah's system is different with Mike Conley looking for how Chris Paul is adapting with the Oklahoma City Thunder and how Chris Paul and their young player Shea Gildas Alexander are playing together I'm watching specifically for those things to think of, you know, potential article ideas or, you know, to educate myself for podcasts. But sometimes it's nice just to sit back and especially when you have a, uh, maybe it happens when you have a deeper understanding of the subject that you're looking at right now. It's like analysis mode, figuring out what's going on in the NBA. But when you sort of get a vibe for what these teams are, what the players are at that point, I think sometimes you can just sit back and watch. Um, but right now, it's all analysis The other mode. day, you broke down on Twitter Mike Conley, who was the veteran point guard from the Memphis Grizzlies, mm-hmm. and he signed with Utah. And I don't even know how you saw any of that stuff with double back screens and all this other stuff. And I was like, how did you even see any of this stuff? <laughs> Sometimes for me, it's like, I don't, I'm somebody who I didn't play basketball growing up. I mean, I, I played with friends, just, you know, us sucking together. <laughs> Playing pickup. Um, So for me, it's like I didn't have training experience with coaches or anything like that besides like a little basketball camp. So for me, it's like I feel like I'm still learning, still trying to learn. There are some people who can watch a game, like a lot of people who work on NBA coaching staffs, for example. They are true experts at watching a game live and seeing everything that's happening. For me, it's the type of thing where I go back on video and watch for particular things or parts for particular trends. And so what, like, how do you notice you know, a trend? What well, are you looking for? Cause there's so I, much shit going on. I mean, on I screen. think it's more just the knowledge of that. Like I, I know when, so in that, in that video you're talking about, essentially what happened is Rudy Gobert, the center on the jazz set a screen for Mike Conley, who was handling the ball. And as Gobert was rolling towards the basket, running towards the basket, another player, Donovan Mitchell came and set a screen on the player defending him. It's really just an understanding of, of the term that that's a, you know, the actual play is a Spain pick and roll, but the the act was a back screen 
because he's essentially it's what it is. He's setting a screen from the back on the player that he's trying to set it for. And so it's really just an understanding of the terminology and giving a name to a, a repetitive action that happens on the court. And you don't see that a lot. So when it happens, it sticks out more often. And why can Conley do this and say Dante Exum not? <laughs> he's just so much more skilled. <laughs> he's just such a better player. Uh, Conley, I mean, it's kind of— all he's doing is passing the yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in that situation, yeah. But also Conley, it's funny because— he is a well-respected name in the league. Everybody likes Mike Conley. Everybody respects Mike Conley. But sometimes I don't feel like we realize how good Mike Conley really is. Mm. I mean, the past six or seven years, he routinely ranks, according to Sindri, as one of the league's most efficient pick-and-roll scorers. And so for him, now he's in a situation on a team that has championship hopes Maybe now he actually starts getting recognized as not just a respectable point guard or a very good point guard, but one of the league's better point guards who impacts winning. And we're going to see that this year with Utah, what he does for a young player in Donovan Mitchell, what he does for already one of the league's better rollers in Rudy Gobert with a good supporting cast. It's an opportunity for Mike Conley to win at the highest level, but for him you know, individually, also prove himself to be an all-star player of which he's never received that honor. When you talk about Spain pick and roll, what was that? That's the name for when a, a player sets a back screen for the rolling big man. But like it's, all it's, of this terminology and everything, like just you it, well, talking about that moment with Ru- Gobert and back screen, all that, it sounds exactly like a bunch of cooks talking about a dish someone else is making. <laughs> I mean, it really does. Yeah. I love hearing this because I'm like, yo, this is exactly the Are same. Are those thing. titles necessary? I'm curious. Like, do you do you need to know those titles or phrases to I think you need to sometimes know that to have a, a really in-depth conversation, but do you need to know it to have an understanding of what you're doing? No, like anything in culture that is um it's made insular because that's what gives value to something, I think. All right. Like yeah. you create your own terminology to make yourself feel special. And cooking, you know, and it's natural. And cooking is full of stupid phrases. And, you know, like, I'm guilty of it. Like, arose is like a French word for basting. Why don't I just say basting? (laughs) Sort of like in in the NBA, there's a technique with defending the pick and roll where the big player, the big guy, drops. And he literally drops. Drops to the paint. It's meant to promote the team to take— induce the opponent into taking a mid-range jumper or to take a perimeter shot. But some teams call it blue. Some teams call it ice. Are there cooking terms like that? where may, Or is it like blue ice drop where somebody be like, wait, you call it blue? You call it ice? Are those the same names or different names for the same thing? There's so many terms, mm-hmm. most of which are based from France. Okay. Uh, I think uh, it, it's just— like a guest comes in, you see on the check, it's like, it says PX. Mm-hmm. PX means person extraordinaire. SPX, super person extraordinaire. Uh-huh. And then it's like, oh, that would be like if a uh, president What's Obama came in. Oh, you know, and then it's like certain other phrases are like, uh, make it soigne. Mm-hmm. Make, soigne means uh, make it great, copacetic. Then you add other phrases like super soigne. <laughs> and it's just like these stupid phrases that, are sort of cut through the chase so you know the kitchen, like everyone's on like the same page pretty quickly. But at the end of the day too, if you were just a visitor looking at the kitchen and all these terms are being thrown out there, you're you're like, this is way more complicated than it needs to be. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Makes sense. It, it, it's it's just another language, ultimately, yeah. really. Um, listen, I love talking to you. I don't think you really understand. Getting to talk to you on this podcast in general is just an excuse for me to further my basketball knowledge. Mm-hmm. I love everything you do, and I genuinely appreciate you breaking all this stuff down. I appreciate you having me, Dave. Uh, you got a finals pick? Oh, <laughs> I I put money on. Uh, I told you I put money on the Celtics. You did twenty five to one. <laughs> but that's not your necessarily doesn't, your pick. No, that's but like, it doesn't look money, very Dave, good right? at all. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's going to be the Sixers and the Clippers. Okay, because now having seen two Clippers games, they look unbelievable. Mm, they look good. <laughs> Well, Clippers, uh, they look like the potential juggernaut in the league. And then and with Philly, in that game against Boston they played, Grant Williams, uh, he was six foot six, big guy in college, looked like a tiny little, you know, person next to this Philadelphia 76ers team, which is a bunch of big dudes. And like the smallest player on the Sixers was six foot six, Josh Richardson at times. They have a bunch of seven footers on the court at the same time. Exciting to watch. Before I get you out of here, I know you're a big fan of Thibuel on the Sixers. If they had to do a redraft, are the Celtics keeping him? <laughs> well, they should keep him. <laughs> yeah, Matisse Thibel is uh, this rookie player who's just an extraordinary defender. Um, but how does yeah. he drop to the late 20s? I don't know. I- I'm not sure. I- I'm always, every year there's a couple guys where it's like, what are teams missing on this guy? Like Brandon Clark is a guy on the Grizzlies, um, Matisse Thibel on the Sixers. With Thibel, there's legitimate concern about his jump shot. And with the value of the three-point shot in today's league, I think it's fair that some of those guys are undervalued. Um, but with Thibel, I think just think he's so extraordinary on defense with at least a good enough shot that it is surprising that he fell as far as he did. To the listeners that are still here, thank you for <laughs> listening to one of the best basketball minds out there. And apologies for any of my dumb cooking analogies. It's just <laughs> I this is how I think. Like I have to. Look at basketball because it better makes me understand my industry. So I'll shut up. Thanks, guys, for listening. If you listen to all of this sports content, you are a better human being. I promise you. Um, you You will understand sports at a higher level and hopefully know why I love sports so much myself. Since it was such a long podcast with maybe not relevant information to you, we are going to leave it at that. No, no, ask David majordomomedia.com questions. Please keep on sending them in and send in uh, questions via our podcast page on Apple. Give us five stars and we'll answer your question next week. Thank you so much, guys. 